Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I am here today. This is Ari Papara. I'm here with Eric Franchi as well as Anna Milicevic from Sparrow Advisors. Anna, how did I do with your last name? Oh, you did very well, Ari. Good job. It was your tutoring. Um, so before we get started, I just want to uh, call attention to two things. First of all, um, if you subscribe to this podcast earlier this week, we had a really interesting episode where we did an oral history of DoubleClick in the 2000s with a bunch of my buddies who were all VPs at DoubleClick. So that's a real must listen. And secondly, we broke the top 50 podcasts in the marketing subcategories uh, on Apple and Spotify. Um, so that was pretty exciting, although I think now we're down to 70 or 80. So we kind of hit, we hit 50 and then we went back up to 80. We hit like number 10 in Ireland the week that Karen O'Kane was on this thing. I think it was his extended relatives all listening. I'm not really sure. That, that sounds a little bit like an ethnically unsensitive thing to say about the Irish family. But, you know, what can you do? Um, yeah. I, I just uh, I just interviewed someone for a portfolio company and um, they mentioned that they listened to the podcast. So oh, we're great. there. Yeah. yeah, that's great to hear. So um, let's jump right in. So we brought in Anna today. Uh, Anna's a, a very uh, ubiquitous uh, and successful consultant to the industry. So she sees kind of a wide variety of problems and, and issues. Uh, and maybe she could give us kind of a pulse of what's going on in sort of the greater ad tech martech world. Um, so, you know, what, what are companies really struggling with today? What do they need consultants for? Yeah, so let me give a little bit of a background on kind of the kind of work that we do. So we're a, a boutique consultancy that helps companies with product strategy, services, sales, and marketing. So kind of a full life cycle from what should you be building and what should your overall strategy be to how to execute that in the field. And we work with um, everyone in the ecosystem. So from tech companies who are maybe looking to launch a new line of business to um, publishers, brands, investors, and other friends. So we have a really cohesive purview on the entire ecosystem. And we're kind of the people to call when you're not really sure what to do about something or you have a problem that you don't quite know how to size up and you need some help with it. So starting from there, one of the things that I'm always puzzled by is how much we talk about the importance of data in the space, but really very few companies and I'll venture out and say practically no one has an actual data strategy, although everyone thinks that they have one. And that's partly because data and marketing was uh, kind of at the forefront of programmatic. So a lot of companies look at data in a very tactical, operational, programmatic channel only way. And they miss the larger picture of how do I turn my data assets into an actual asset? How do I value them appropriately? And how do I actually operationalize them with a revenue strategy in mind? And if this sounds scary, it's it's really a kind of a daily thing to me because one of the first questions is Ari and Eric know for out of my mouth usually is, you know, how do you make money out of this? So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of a, a big discrepancy between where the ecosystem is when it comes to maturity with data and where we generally think we are. So what uh, what is a data strategy? I mean, I would think you collect data and use the data, maybe store it somewhere in the middle. Um, is it is it more than that? That's a that's a really good baseline. But then it's <laughs> you know, what 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 data do you collect? How frequently do you update that collection? You know, which if you're collecting data sets that basically the same data set from several different locations, like let's say you're a publisher with multiple different imprints which data point has more value and weight 
and which one do you trust more? And then really more on the commercialization side is how do you make sense of all of that data? What do you use for planning purposes? What do you use for forecasting in other areas of business? And then what do you use for activation, for example? And so we see a lot of different approaches. There are, you know, on the brand side, usually brands start this journey from some sort of customer mail list and they'll have a lot of email addresses and then have maybe not been as proactive with their uh, website assets. And then in publisher land, it's the opposite. They may have a long history of tracking and collecting data on various web and mobile properties, but um, the email channel is relatively new. And so it's, it's all slightly out of sync. Like I said, individual channels, like if you think of them as an orchestra, in individual channels, you might have people who know what they're doing and know how to play their instrument, but there's really no one who's put it together well, and there's no orchestra conductor, and it just kind of sounds slightly out of tune. Right, right. So, like back in the days when everyone had a DMP, uh, there was this joke that uh, the DMP implementation will continue until morale improves. <laughs> in the, uh, the, <laughs> Yep, and, <laughs> the joke and, it, is, and it has. Morale is still low. I mean, the, the, explaining the joke for a moment. Uh, the joke is that uh, the first step of any data strategy would always be collect all your data and put it in one place. And that would turn into, you know, the solution itself. Like it would it become self-fulfilling that that was the strategy you had to do it and it would take forever and you'd never get it done. Have times changed? Is there, do you get outputs that are valuable quicker or do you, does it still require sort of boiling the ocean? Yeah, it, it doesn't require boiling the ocean. It's actually relatively simple once you approach it as, hey, this is not a technology problem first. It's a people and process problem first. And this is where the consulting speak starts to index a little bit more, but this is more of a change management issue than anything else. And this is how that backs into the larger topic of digital transformation, especially if your mental model is like a traditional media company or someone who is not digital first. So most companies have this tendency whenever anything ad tech related comes up is to approach it as a technology first challenge. And then they neglect the fact that no matter how good the technology is, you still have to fit it into your organization and you have to have a clear commercial goal that you want to implement. And so if, you know, if I had a dollar for every phone call I'd gotten when somebody was saying, Hey, I just bought a DMP or a CDP last week. Where's my ROI? <laughs> we could be recording this on a private island somewhere and just, you know, that's really not the way to approach this. If that's the question you're right. asking after you've bought the technology, you're already in trouble. You, you could get ROI without a DMP or a CMP. Um, you, you could by, by saving the money that you would have spent on that <laughs> technology and investing it on figuring out what you're doing first. It's, it's so, kind of like, you know, buying a really expensive car without knowing how to drive or living next to a road, sort of. Yeah, I, I think this is fascinating. But I also think this is like, you know, a real 2023 both challenge and opportunity because there's been so much investment in CDPs, so much investment in like, you know, the cloud data infrastructure by, you know, it's like every brand, every, every company. And, you know, as, as you said, there's like all of these blockers, both you know, sort of like internal and, and technical and, and operational that prevent them from, you know, ultimately like, you know, getting what they are paying for. Right. So, um, so it feels to me that, 
folks can you know start to come around to your strategy of like, hey, what what, what are we doing? Why are there these blockers? Like, you know, uh, in an age where there's a drive towards more efficiency, we're going to see, I would hope, like real value come out of these investments that have been made over the course of the past few years as, you know, there's just like more ability to use data with predictive modeling and machine learning and, and you know, re- really do high level stuff. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, some of your um, portfolio companies are, are really at the cutting edge of this where they're, they're kind of already living in this world where we have these capabilities that the data world has promised us. But uh, unfortunately, the reality for a lot of brands, a lot of publishers, and a lot of intermediaries is that they're not quite there yet. And again, it's really a, an organizational challenge more so than anything else that I think we'll be able to resolve fairly quickly, given uh, the understanding that it's not just a tech problem, the ad tech name notwithstanding. So who's doing it right? Can you give examples, either your clients or people you've seen in the in the marketplace who's, who have coherent and effective data strategies? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Disney is oftentimes the company that, that comes into mind as really being cutting edge with their data. They were, you know, have been very smart about how they're approaching it for a really, really long time. But they're also one of those companies that has every asset under the sun and they have healthy budgets. They have a really, really strong team that's able to operationalize this. Their data set and their approach is kind of dreamy and in many ways the gold standard. And I think in, in every vertical, you can find somebody who's doing things really, really well. But what I find fascinating is that there is such a huge drop off between the you know one or two leaders and then everybody else. And so when you look at the overall maturity of the space, it seems very, very choppy and, and flip side, like lopsided. Right. Yeah, I think Disney sort of has this advantage of having of being all owned and operated, right, between the parks and the travel and uh, the media. Uh, you know, they, they weren't cobbled together through acquisitions and the, the, it's a pretty coherent group of companies and, and management. Whereas if you're a company that has, you know, multiple, say, magazine titles that are run totally separately or, or however you operate, it's a lot harder to get everyone on the same page. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think the companies in the kind of former magazine space that have acknowledged that and addressed the underlying organizational change of doing it right. I uh, just listened to a podcast with Bonnie Kinzer from um, Reader's Digest and, and that group of brands. I think they're an interesting example of taking a really legacy brand and making it relevant. Dot Dash also comes up a lot. Um, again, really, really big fan of Neil Vogel and team. And um, there are these interesting, interesting approaches. But the the other interesting thing is that there's no commonality in terms of their individual approaches. They're all like using different, slightly different stacks. They have slightly differently structured teams. And uh, so there's many different ways someone can win in this space. And there are also like 100 million ways you can lose. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you've ever tried to update your magazine subscription with some major publishing houses based in New York, it's just, you know, try to update your billing information on their website and you'll have an experience that doesn't speak well to their uh, ability to use data. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so fascinating that um, you, you're talking about Disney and so, so some of these legacy uh, publishers that, you know, are on something and doing it right. 
because when you ask that question, Ari, of, of who, who's doing it right, who, who are some examples, all of the ones that came to mind to me, and again, it's maybe sort of like N equals one and sample bias are like D to C's that, you know, just are so clearly, you know, have, have this process down pat, whether it's, hey, here, make your second purchase or here, come back to us with this coupon or discount because you haven't made a purchase or here, right? Like, you know, we, we understand your, your your preferences. So I know you bought this. How about trying this? Um, and I think like, you know, the real opportunity for, for the enterprises to, you know, learn from the, the small guys. You know, Eric, I, I love that perspective. And I was in your camp till about maybe two years ago, just around the, the start of the pandemic, maybe a little bit before that. When I, uh, at least the, the DTC brands that I was seeing at the time were very skilled in digital channels, but tapped out with any type of cogent multi-channel strategy and really didn't know what to do with customer data or customer learnings outside of the realms of the walled gardens where they usually found initial success and initial customer base. So yes, highly skilled in email marketing, reactivation, maybe some SMS marketing and reactivation and and driving up average order value, but completely lost when thinking about how to reduce CAC outside of the realm of just Facebook or just Instagram. And we, we saw this pretty painfully in the space when ATT started taking effect and you couldn't have a reliable CAC on Facebook and Instagram and friends anymore. And that took out a lot of very promising looking businesses in the D2C space. Now, I think that the other part of this is there's a lot that you can learn from a D2C company. And so I'm, I'm very interested by examples of larger companies starting up a D2C line, if for no or acquiring their way in, if for no other reason, just to learn how to be quicker and more nimble. And uh, we've been fortunate where we've had a couple of clients do that. And it, it's an interesting business case to try to demonstrate when, you know, like your other lines of business are raking in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. And then you have like your D2C line that's brought in maybe $5 million of revenue this year in the grand scheme of things that looks inconsequential in your large company setting. But that's the foundation to build a lot of stuff on. So it becomes really hard to argue internally that you should continue investing in D2C when you're in that kind of framework. But it's absolutely essential for, for those reasons that you flagged, like the, the intelligence and the understanding of how to deal with, with uh, newer channels. Yeah, I mean, the DTC sort of revolution for what it was worth was really exciting, but also very simplistic. Uh, I, I once made a joke on Twitter, uh, which was, you know, DTC brands understand both kinds of marketing, Facebook <laughs> and Google. So, um, country and Western. Yeah, exactly. The, the Blues Brothers reference there. Um, so in the prep for this call, um, this podcast, uh, you said something that made me laugh, um, which was your hot take. Clean rooms are a luxury good. Yeah. Please explain. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it, it, it's been a hot week for for clean rooms, and really a hot year for clean rooms. And it, it, you know, every year in ad tech and martech, we have we get a new three letter acronym that we all get really excited about. And so I'm told it's a DCR now, which is data clean room. You need the and, D there uh, to make it a three letter acronym. Yes, otherwise it's t- totally redundant. Yeah, it just do- doesn't work. And, you know, for what it's worth, I think for me, it's easier to actually say data clean room than DCR. 
but uh, pick your your poison and your pronunciation, I guess. Uh, and I think there's there's a lot of reasons to be excited about clean rooms, but for the time being, they are a luxury good because to be successful with a clean room, you have to have like this is not the first privacy preserving technology that you buy. Like you don't walk into a the future of marketing store and go, "Ooh, I want that. Give me that." So you have to have a foundation. You have to have, ideally, you'd have a data strategy, but you probably have a CDP. Maybe you have a consent management platform. Maybe you have a couple of other things in play before you get to the data clean room. And so the starting price tag for clean rooms is somewhere around 200K a year or thereabouts. And so your overall investment in the market tech stack at this point is between you know, 500 to, to a million plus on the low end. But that's not the only kind of gating factor at the moment. You also need to have folks with skills that can, you know, operationalize a clean room. And um, there aren't that many in market who have the data savvy, the privacy understanding, and just the kind of the overall capability to work with a clean room effectively. And so unless you already have a team of five to 10 people who are highly skilled in these areas, you're, you're going to struggle with implementation. So if they are something that the most advanced marketers should be implementing right now. And on the good news side is innovation is moving so quickly in this space that various clean room light technologies are hitting the market soon. And um, you probably heard the air quotes in my voice <laughs> when I said light. But uh, right. these are solutions that will make it easier uh, to get the benefits of a clean room without having to kind of foot the full extent of the investment uh, in the software and the services required. And so I think that's going to be exciting. But we're probably... 12 to 18 months away from that more mass adoption. So uh, let me so, jump in uh, there. So, um, you know, during the, the architecture interviews, I've talked to basically every clean room provider. And the question I posed to many of them was, uh, it, will this fundamentally be part of the marketer stack or is it a tool for publishers to activate? Uh, because a lot of the activation that companies like NBC have been doing around clean rooms have been about, you know, getting the media dollars to flow. And of course, the walled gardens aren't going to allow an external clean room probably to interoperate very well. Um, what do you think? Is this part of the marketer stack or the publisher stack? I think it will be part of both with slightly different use cases, sort of how DMPs and CDPs were both, you know, very neutral technologies that happened to be adopted by one side of the ecosystem sooner than the other, but they work for both. And um, I think this is really more of a how do we make general data assets like data warehouses, data lakes, smarter, and add that layer of commercial trust that we're now relegating to activation platforms and kind of centralize it. And, um, you know, you've both probably seen about at least easily a hundred different diagrams where, you know, going back to the days of ad servers, where you have some sort of like data layer, and then like a decisioning engine, usually like a brain in this diagram. And then from that brain is the various activation layers on all sides. And I think that's the architecture that we're all hoping finally materializes. And in this post-cookie universe, clean rooms would be that trust layer that decides what goes where under which circumstances. 
Right. So, Eric, like, is is clean rooms its own category, or does it, from an investment perspective, do you worry too much that it gets combined into other categories? We'll talk about LiveRamp making some announcements in this area in a bit, but it does seem like, especially from what Anna just said, that it's like that it becomes part of another layer. Yeah, yeah, I um, I, I would agree with the the latter point of of what you said. At least at this point, you know, sort of never never bet against in innovation and you know, uh, sort of like a, a market opportunity. But you know, it feels like this ends up becoming part of a much um, larger stack, a, a much a much larger sort of like offering within organizations. We um, we were we wanted to invest in in clean rooms, like we were really leaned into the the market, and you know, there were very few like you know seed stage startups that that were doing this. Um, and we invested in in one. It's called Nth Party. You know, they they basically had a six month run, and then you know, uh, Magnite came along and, and and acquired them. So you know, there's not too many other again sort of like early stage companies that are that are building this. And that was actually going to be my question for Anna: the who are the DCR lights coming from? Are they coming from like new product offerings from you know large uh, existing players that are just trying to you know try, trying to get share? Were you starting to see this as a trend with startups? And if so, are there, are there companies that should be on our radar? That's a really good question. I also haven't seen many new companies in this space. And then I qualify that by saying this whole space is fairly new. So in the last six months, let's say, I haven't really seen somebody who would be at the you know seed stage. But um, there are companies that are at the scale stage. You know, um, I think Optimal out of Canada, uh, Habu is probably further yeah, along, InfoSong. And um, where I think this is going to go when I say light, and first of all, the clean room solutions from the walled gardens, I think are going to get a lot lighter and easier to use. And then the kind of these, these specialists, um, like the companies I just mentioned, are going to work to make it easier to try a clean room. So maybe if you're Maybe you don't have to have a full clean room implementation yourself to be able to use it. And I think that's the model that, that we'll see emerge into market. And then I, I see a lot of opportunity for vertical clean rooms, you know, a clean room that specializes in the travel sector, for example, or some of the less digitally advanced digital first industries. There's a lot of opportunity there. And certainly in regulated industries, I think it's a particularly interesting value prop. And because clean rooms have that services component, like if you don't have that team of 10-ish people or so in-house, you're going to need to find them somewhere. It's actually a really big opportunity for agencies to coalesce around and, and create new product offerings. So I think that's where, where we'll see new and interesting things come from. Yeah, I have to agree with you on the vertical thing. I don't think they'll be called clean rooms. I think they'll be called analytic solutions. But the, having the business rules to present data to your partners in a vertical in a way that protects privacy, but also is, protects your business interests, I think is a big opportunity in retail media, travel, and maybe some other categories. Yeah, healthcare, real estate. Just think about you know the the, the industries that have uh, you know high indexed high to regulatory environments would be an awesome opportunity. Yeah, and and they'll have to use clean room technologies, um, but the, the clean room itself is not the solution people are looking for. 
which actually kind of leads into the news a little bit. Um, so uh, this week was Ramp Up. Uh, maybe it still is. I, I didn't go this year, but a uh, big conference uh, led by LiveRamp out on the West Coast. It's probably the best West Coast conference out there. So um, they made an announcement that stirred up some people's thoughts. Uh, <laughs> they made two announcements, but um, as with many announcements, it's a little bit hard to peel back the onion and figure out what they actually mean. <laughs> but the first one was that they are allowing activation in Snowflake. Um, so this press release basically said that you could use uh, LiveRamp's identity and their uh, in Snowflake, the LiveRamp graph, as part of its privacy protecting technologies. Uh, I have to say, after reading this press release and reading the many excited tweets about it. I still don't know what it is. Uh, I could guess. Uh, does anyone on the call want to take a guess as to what this means? So you, do you remember there? there's a similar announcement with uh, Trade Desk's UID2 yes. um, a few months ago? So I, I think it's that, that that's the lens I'm looking at this in. It's if you are a customer in common of both Snowflake and LiveRamp, Snowflake and TTD, then this particular integration makes activation on those two platforms easier. And to me, this is one of those kinds of, yeah, this is a big deal, but it's also a press release type innovation where you're just kind of letting your clients know to talk to you about this kind of thing if you're planning right. to do it anyway. Right. It's not it's a, like, it's, you know, it's, it's like talk to your doctor about <laughs> talk to your doctor about snowflake yeah. for, for advanced and non small cell snowflake. Yeah. Um, the, uh, that, that, you know, that said though, it, it does play into you know, what, what we were talking about earlier, where there's been so much investment in this cloud infrastructure, you know, including snowflake that I think the more we see these activation opportunities happen, I think the more, the, the, the promise of, of paying off on the investment and, you know, making just like data-driven marketing becomes real, right? Yeah. And, and the, the other way I would look at it is the way people buy advertising is still very much the same. Yes, now we're transacting on top of a programmatic layer, et cetera. But a marketer, you know, is still trying to target the right people with the right message on the right channel at the same time, uh, at the right time. That's a, a good lapsus lingua there on, at the same time, which uh, <laughs> could speak to a lot of our, our CTV <laughs> advertisers, but um, I'm not going to poke that particular bear. But yeah, so we're basically reconstituting a privacy safe ecosystem now uh, from the previous system that was so heavily reliant on cookies and maids and, and uh, individual identifiers to this kind of new world where there's a nugget of PII and then out of that you built an entire ecosystem kind of. So this is one of those steps where you want to communicate to brands that, hey, that thing that you want to do, we can help you do it, but better. Right, right. So I think in the old world, here's my interpretation of what the announcement means. And I might be wrong, so please correct me. In the old world, you have your database of users and you would append extra data to it. So you would license, let's say, the LiveRamp ID and then link from the LiveRamp ID to another party's ID, like something Equifax or, or something like that. And you would enrich your data set with more columns of data. And that's obviously not very privacy safe. So I believe what this announcement is, is that you would do this 
the same thing. You're you're enhancing your data set, but within the Snowflake environment, and Snowflake, for those of you who don't know, is just a very advanced cloud-based database. Within the Snowflake environment, they have controls that will obfuscate some of this data so that while it's matched, it's matched in a privacy-protected way. And no one walks away with that data. So in the old world, to share any sort of data with anyone, you had to first do the ID sync, and then you literally exchange files. And then what happens to that data after that, you have very little control over. Uh, Yes, you have contractual control, but there's no possible way for you to enforce uh, any type of business rules you've agreed to it. Just right. Operationally speaking, you can't enforce them. And so in, in privacy-preserving tech, that is the fundamental difference is that that enforcement layer is also present. So yeah, you, it, it's it's exactly that. It's here's this thing you used to be able to do. You can now still do it, but in a better way. And right. we'll just keep continuing to improve it kind of. All right. So then LiveRam put out a second press release. Um, this could be a regular feature of architecture podcast. We could just read press releases and try to understand <laughs> what they mean. <laughs> I'm going to read the title of this one. Uh, LiveRamp launches secure and flexible data collaboration capabilities for cross-screen measurement across multiple partners. Is I this think- a DCR light? Is this the first one in the wild? <laughs> it's, uh, it, well, Eric, it's a flexible data collaboration capability for cross-screen measurement across multiple partners. Yes. I think this is saying that they have connected TV data in their clean room. I think that's what this means. Okay. Well, that's that's a pretty big thing to have. Um, <laughs> but but, uh, but I, I actually like the way they're talking about this. Um, n- not without notes, mind you, but the focus on data collaboration rather than here is a data clean room, or here is a data platform, or a data hub, or a data something else, is I think really, really interesting because ultimately that's what everyone in the ecosystem is interested in. It's the collaboration part of this. Yeah, I think the first take on clean rooms was all activation. It was like, hey, match publisher data and advertiser data, and you can target ads. And it quickly became clear that that was just one use case and actually not that powerful a use case because the match rates are low. Um, and so most of the clean room vendors themselves talk about data collaboration as their, as their value prop. Um, uh, well, they talk about data collaboration really so that they would go around the interoperability challenge that they've been faced with so far. So up until fairly recently, different cleanroom solutions couldn't talk to each other. And now, um, as of a few weeks ago, there's a, a proposal out by the IAB Tech Lab for the first set of, of interoperability standards of clean rooms. Um, if you are interested in this space, I believe it's up for public comment till mid-April, so check it out. And I will plug two other data clean room things here. One is um, the IAB Tech Lab has also released their newest state of data report, and it's all about clean rooms. So if you're interested in learning more about this space, that would be the kind of the reference text I would look 
for. Uh, and then I am speaking at the MarTech conference at the, uh, I think it's the tail end of March on this very topic. So it's uh, data clean rooms all the way over here. Yeah, we'll get that plug in there. Uh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> all right. So this week, uh, a pretty well-reported article about the history of MediaMath uh, came out in, in on Insider by Lara O'Reilly, who I think probably most of us have read. Um, pretty well-reported. It wasn't a hit piece. It was talking about how MediaMath has gone through various travails and um, how the new ownership came about and uh, Joe Zawatsky uh, and his history there. So, Eric, you're partners with Joe, so uh, I assume you're not going to want to talk too much about it. But just tell us, is, is Joe just a terrible person to work with? Joe's my business partner, has been for five <laughs> years. Um, we work together closely. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> Joe's a great guy. We all love Joe. Um, uh, so, uh, and Joe is actually an investor in architecture, so this is getting very uh, circular. Um, or was. <laughs> and, and beeswax. Um, so, uh, no, one thing I would like to, to poke at a little bit. Um, one of the kind of stories that's gone around about MediaMath over the years, and this is also the case on Turn, was that there was this critical mistake made and the DSPs pivoted in you know, call it 2013, to away from agencies and towards marketers with the belief that they would in-house ad tech. This is the story. Um, I'm, I'm interested in your point of view. And they were just outflanked by the trade desk, which stayed true to agencies and gobbled up all the business. And I have a perspective on this at Beeswax as well. I don't think the story is 100% true, but I'm very interested in uh, in whether that is uh, your understanding of it as well. Maybe, Anna, you want to start with that one? Uh, sure. I, I think I wouldn't lump Turn and MediaMath together. I, I think Turn's challenge was that they wanted to they, – they had a really strong IO-based business, and they wanted to position it as a SaaS business, and they hired a go-to-market and sales team leads who were very good at SaaS selling, but perhaps not quite – good at bridging that gap between the IO world and and SaaS. And you saw um, several other companies make that mistake. Some were from the data space trying to pivot from being data sellers to being SaaS sellers, some being SaaS trying to expand into media and not quite hitting critical mass there. Right. I think for, you know, to... Look, there's a saying in Serbian that goes something along the lines of, you know, all generals are smart after the battle. And um, I think it's when you are living in a particular moment and working with the clients that you have, you're taking your cues from them and you're building, you know, you're, you're executing your product vision and strategy, but you're also building what the market wants you to build. And um, that can be deceiving because sometimes the market swings very quickly and very aggressively in a different direction. And I think that when we look at the rate of in-housing, it's still there. But I think everybody kind of underestimated the amount of services that have to run on top of a successful in-housing operation. And you know what? What I think was obvious to those of us who were early on programmatic was that someone who is very successful in programmatic isn't necessarily going to go and take a role at, you know, a brand and have their title be ad tech specialist <laughs> to Northeast region, right. that, you know, doesn't translate into 
successful subsequent roles. There, there was also a geographic problem, which is the people who understood programmatic were largely in New York and San Francisco and L.A., and the brands are in St. Louis and Cincinnati and Cleveland. Yes. Um, so it's, it's a sliding doors kind of thing. Um, <laughs> Make a romantic comedy about a brand and the programmatic specialists who uh, don't understand each other but fall in love. Let's pitch it to Netflix and <laughs> um, you need to come up with a good title for it. Um, he, so my take on that, Eric, do you want to jump in here or do you want me to just jump in? <laughs> Go ahead. Eric's, Eric's just being quiet. Okay, I'll jump in. Ari's so, just um, trying to squeeze some, some dirt out of Eric. <laughs> so one of the most, or more, so my experience at Beeswax, at least, was that um, we were also kind of chasing after the in-housers. And there really was a lot of enthusiasm for in-housing. Um, in-housing was real, and it was pretty hard for someone to deny that that was an opportunity to jump on, especially given how painful it can be to work with agencies. But what actually happened was that Google overwhelmingly won the in-housers. The in-housers actually just wanted the easiest all-in-one solution to use, and Google checks that box. And so between Ads Data Hub and their search spend and YouTube and DV360, the in-house battle was very difficult for an outsider to win. And that's at least my experience with Beeswax. I don't know if that's accurate for everybody. I think your your the clients that gravitated towards beeswax would have been a different level of maturity. I would probably say they were of a higher level of maturity. And if those folks settled on the Google stock, it really demonstrates how challenging the value prop of the open internet is to a brand. Yeah, the resources uh, of you know. I think both, and I talked to Joe about this in long ago, but like, I think one of the underlying hypotheses of media math going after brands and also beeswax going after brands was this belief that brands wanted kind of like a systems integrator model, um, having deep data from their CDP or DMP integrated, having their own data, uh, algorithms, things like that. And it turns out that they wanted one of two things. They either wanted to have it be a really simple, which was not what we were shooting for. Or they wanted a really good partner agency or agency-like company to help them with the transition, in which case they own the paperwork for the DSP, but they didn't actually want to use it, um, neither of which kind of played to the strength. They actually played to the strength of the two leaders, which are Trade Desk and Google. All right, let's uh, move on to um, acquisition news. Uh, Simplify acquired Bidtelect. Um, so that's um, Simplify, uh, kind of a mid-tier DSP that focuses on smaller agencies. Uh, I think that's a pretty good characterization of them. They've been pretty innovative since being acquired by uh, a private equity firm. Uh, and they acquired Bidtelect, which is kind of a smallish DSP that focuses on native ads, I think. I'm not that familiar with Bidtelect. Um, Eric, you want any thoughts on this one? Yeah, sure. Um, so accurate on Simplify seems to be like they're doing quite well with all things mid market, from what I can tell, right? So SMBs uh, on up. Um, so I think there's a clear sort of like lane for them there. I remember bid select, um, but it was it was quite a while. So when you know the, the news came out, I was like, huh, it's a ten year old company. Co-founded by uh, one of the Ferber brothers, actually the um, sort of a, a original uh, brothers started uh, Ad.com, which was you know one of the one of the big exits from the 
call it web 0.5 era, not the, not the programmatic 1.0 era. And, uh, you know, sort of has been hanging out there, raised, uh, you know, a, a modest amount in total, 27 million. And, you know, if, if you read the release, uh, it says that Simplify is picking up native, but they're also picking up contextual capabilities. So there's probably a, mm-hmm. a contextual angle here that, you know, they're, they're, they're looking to add to the stack, but, um, they're sort of like, we talk about DSPs a, a, a lot here, previous conversation notwithstanding in terms of, you know, there's just like, there's a real appetite in the market for, for these types of companies. And, you know, with, with bid to life taken out, it's, it's interesting and, and a question like how many, how many more indie DSPs are there left? Yeah, if you want to sell your company, start a DSP. That would be my advice. <laughs> it's true. There's like there's sort of an unlimited desire. If some corp dev guy and some product manager and some big company is like, it would be great if we could activate this data, and then boom, you sell them your DSP. Um, easy money. Well, that that's a that's an uh, th- there's another angle here, and that's you know how big of a business and how attractive of a business can you create by focusing on an underserved vertical and just renting a seat from like a Xander or somebody else. Um, And then, you know, we've talked a little bit about the kind of the not digital first, not digital forward industries, deregulated industries. Like that seems like an interesting opportunity to me to just um, focus on on a niche vertical with enough funds and see what happens. There are definitely companies like that in healthcare, um, in CTV buying, um, the, uh, the travel, co- there were a bunch of travel companies and they all had terrible exits because COVID was just a kick to the shins. Um, but yeah, I think there are opportunities there. Oh, that's also doubt, worth yeah. N- yeah, yeah, there native has been an underperforming category. Um, you know, there have not been any breakout native DSPs. You know, Zamanta owned by Outbrain is one of the larger ones, but it's a pretty small company. And on the really, uh, you know, TripLift had a giant exit, but the native was only one piece of the pie there. They did a lot of other things. Uh, really, the only big winners in native have been Outbrain and Taboola, who have an ad network model. Um, I don't know what that teaches us, but it's an interesting observation. Yeah, it's, it's just. It's uh, out- Sorry, you're going to make that terrible joke. How when everything else fails, ad ad networks always survive. So I'll actually let Eric tuck some smarts. <laughs> As a former ad network person, no, just just kidding. Uh, I think uh, yeah, that's that's right, right. So you have Taboola and Outbrain, and then you know if you think about the the native innovation that we saw, maybe previous cycle, it was mostly focused on the sell side, right? So if I think about Triple lift, and you think about that class, which you would include what Nativo, Share Through. They were very sell side focused companies. It seems to be like the buy side was um, either sort of like underserved or um, or was was not the bet that that you know the the startups took at the time. Yeah, I think it, uh, I think a big part of this is that the demand is endemic. Uh, like the demand on Outbrain and Taboola is are companies that only advertise on Outbrain and Taboola, uh, and that um, the brand spend has never been really as significant as anyone might think it should be in native. Yeah. And that that spend is going to Walt Gardens, like you know, since Instagram right, right, created, yeah. Instagram Creative is effectively the world's mm-hmm. best native creative. Yeah. Um, Last topic to talk about. So I'm going to do a little. So this is an audience quiz. You can't respond, but I'm just going to. I'm going to challenge the people in the audience. You have three seconds to tell me what company's name. What what com- ad tech company changed its name to Equitive? Just spend three seconds. One, two, 
three. I bet like no one got it. Uh, smart ad server. So smart ad server is Equitive. Um, and they announced a new majority shareholder. They were able to sell a uh, majority of interest in their company to Bridgepoint. It was a pretty nice um, valuation, somewhere in the 300 and, uh, 300 and something million dollar valuation for the uh, smart ad server. It is a publisher ad server and they combined with a DSP called LiquidM and some other stuff to create Equitive. Is this a, uh, a bullish sign for ad tech or just, you know, run the mill news? I think this is interesting from a couple of uh, perspectives. Was, was that 300 million number, is that like a rumor or did, was that confirmed? I don't remember. It's not in the press release, but I definitely saw it going around that the yeah, yeah. was in the 300s. Yeah, I would. Um, I, I could imagine that it was north of that, actually. The press release uh, from Equitive said that they're um, they're at a hundred million dollar net ARR run rate. So um, you know, just based on multiples and public comps and and you know, sort of companies that are growing at that pace, uh, if it's true, it could be it could be larger on a total valuation uh, standpoint. That's number one. Number two, interesting on this deal is Bridgepoint. So Bridgepoint, if you recall, uh, they did the MIQ deal last year, which, um, you know, valued the company, I think, north of a billion dollars. They've got like four funds. And this one uh, was invested out of a different fund. Again, if I'm, I'm, I'm reading the press release correctly, which I, I think I am. But, you know, it seems like Bridgepoint's got a, got a real thesis and, uh, and, and strategy for, um, for the space. So, yeah, I think you, you call it a bullish signal because, you know, when private equity is, you know, looking to do these roll up type of strategies, um, you know, tends to not stop. So I, I think it's, it's net bullish, but, you know, up, up to you, to you all. A hundred percent with you there, especially as the kind of P involvement is a signal. And I gotta imagine, just from a you know investor point of view, it's it's an interesting opportunity for uh, the companies that you invest in that are earlier stage to now have another potential option for an exit that they can uh, start skating towards. Although there's a you know couple of pretty significant growth stages in between, but uh, but yeah, I, I think. There's a lot of opportunity in the space because of that. There's there's a lot of fundamental things changing. And so even really healthy companies probably have at least one or, or two lines of business where their team structure and incentives is all wrong. And maybe they overhired or they didn't hire the right people. And this is the kind of the bread and butter for a good PE invention kind of coming in with a strong thesis, with a point of view on how to operate the business and being able to execute on that and, and position the business in a, in a better direction. And um, I always see it as a sign of, of maturity in an industry when that happens. So I'm, I'm really excited. I think a lot of good stuff will come out of these kinds of investments. Yeah, I think there could be a thesis about geographic expansion as well. You know, Smart Equitive is a pretty strong company in Europe uh, yeah. with a small presence in the U.S. Media IQ is a little more balanced where they started in Europe, but actually have expanded quite rapidly in the U.S. Um, so uh, that could be part of it. Um, I, I wonder if there's also just a little bit of putting a, putting a chip on the table just in case Google DoubleClick gets spun out. Um, it will change the dynamics in the publisher ad server market pretty radically um, and could be very advantageous to the few independent ad servers in that space. That's a great point. Wow. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting point. Again, you know, odds are probably low, but the you know, sort of like asymmetric upside could be pretty awesome. That's a that's a really good point. It's also that that so remember that brain and decisioning layer we were talking about. So it, it's um, an ad server is in a position to also act as that brain or decisioning engine, and it's interesting to see ad servers come up for contention again, especially when you think about like large traditional media companies who don't necessarily want to work with uh, Google's ad server or Comcast's ad server or, you know, somebody who's aligning them with a direct competitor. Um, all of a sudden, they have a lot of very attractive looking options. And Ari, to your point about smart ad server in particular, or Equative being very Europe focused, I got to imagine that's a really, really big technological moat, just because it's so much more cost effective to run a really strong engineering team, engineering and product team in Europe than it is in the US. And I think that that is certainly part of the attraction here. Yeah, it could be. A, it definitely could be a factor. There's a lot of really interesting things going on in the ad server market uh, due to regulatory privacy, et cetera. So on that subject, let's uh, we're going to call this. It was a great conversation. Uh, Eric and Anna, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. This was super fun. Let's do it again. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.